our panelists will be discussing the following topics. We're going to cover all this in one hour. Oh my God, we got to get I started. Know. <laughs> I hope you have, a, have some caffeine in your systems, you guys. Uh, so we're going to go over the basics, going over calculating and sharing family property, the home, special considerations, onus, equalization, and limitation periods. And just a quick note to those of you in the legal community, this program has been accredited by the Law Society of Ontario, so it contains one hour of professionalism content. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists for today. So we have Bill Rogers. He is a managing associate lawyer at our firm. His courtroom experience includes numerous motions, several full-blown trials, and he has also had the privilege of winning a major family law victory at the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2014. When he's not practicing law, he loves spending time playing music with his band Soul Custody, soon to be renamed to Soul Decision-Making Authority. <laughs> Uh, Rick is an associate lawyer and brings over 14 years of family law expertise. Rick focuses on all aspects of family law and matrimonial law by supporting his clients in resolving matters. He fosters strong relationships with his clients that are built on trust and transparency. Rick collaboratively works with his clients in achieving effective solutions through various dispute resolution mechanisms. And last but not least, Russell Alexander is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell uses his knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients. So now that you know a little bit more about our team and what we have on the agenda for today, I'm going to pass things over to Russ to start the presentation. Let's make a start. Um, let's throw the poll question up first. Let's see who we have joining us today. So our audience consists of uh, legal professionals, 45% professional in another field, 22%. Currently going through a separation and divorce. Well, you're going to learn a lot here today, 23%. Um, helping a loved one and other. So thank you, staff, for those very kind words. I think Bill's going to take us to the year 1215 and the Magna Carta and tell us about the basics. Over to you, Bill. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go as far back as, uh, as that day, um, although trust, law, um, is from about a thousand years ago in England, it's true, but I'm going to talk about first, what is property? What, how is property defined? And uh, the Family Law Act, Section 4 definitions, um, define property as any interest present or future, vested or contingent, in real or personal property. So, uh, the interesting point there, be it present or future, there is a, a spot on the financial statement saying money owed to you, um, that, that's property, it's a future interest, for example. Um, real or personal property, uh, we all know what real estate is, it's uh, it's land, um, it's and the then dirt, everything else right? is personal. Sorry? Real estate's the dirt, right? It is, it's actual dirt. dirt. And I think that's why they call it real estate, because unlike a bank account, it can't disappear, it's actual piece of earth, can grab it, put a fence around it. So they call it real. And personal property is everything else. Uh, money in the bank is property. Stocks and bonds are property. Um, pension is, is considered property. And uh, I like to look at it as uh, make a distinction between property and income. Income is a separate thing and it, it ties into spousal support and child support. So it's treated separately. Um, now, what is financial disclosure? <clears throat> basically if you're uh, it's 
I always tell my clients, you be 110% honest with your financial disclosure and everything else. Because if you're not, the judge will find out eventually and I'll be right away. When they do, it'll really hurt you. So just be honest about everything. Um, and then you have to back up everything you say with a document, whether it's a bank record or a mortgage statement, that kind of stuff. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a case called Leskin, 2006, quoted an earlier BC decision and said the following, quote, non-disclosure is the cancer of matrimonial property litigation. So I always tell my clients, be honest, you got nothing to hide. Um, what documents do you need to gather if you're in court? Or even if you're not in court, you need these. Uh, basically, your full tax returns from the last three years, at least. Um, also, your notices of assessment. Both of those are available online. More than once, I've told a client how to apply to get on that website of the CRA. And usually they can, but, you know, it's, uh, it's all there. It's very convenient. You also need the uh, most recent pay stub. Um, and uh, you're also going to need... Uh, to back up all your all your assets that you say you have with, with some kind of documents. So it's gonna be bank records, mortgage records, credit card statements. Um, sometimes you're asked to go back a long time um, and the bank will say, well, we can only go back so long. And then you have to go to the bank and beg them. And it's, uh, it's quite a, a thing, but you try your best to get, you know, uh, your bank records from the date of marriage in 1979 could be a little tough to get, but theoretically you're supposed to. And a financial statement is where you put all this stuff. Uh, it's a sworn statement. It's made under oath. So if you lie, you're actually committing perjury. Um, so always be 110% honest. Believe me, it's the way to go. Um, and every number on your financial statement, again, has to be backed up by some kind of document bank record or credit card record, whatever. Um, and uh, on a, a financial statement uh, for married people, there's usually, well, there's three uh, time uh, uh, snapshots, date of marriage, date of separation, and today. So you have a lot of, it's a lot of information to gather, but uh, it's, it's one of those things you just have to do. And again, the more honest you can be, well, if you have to be honest, it, it will pay off. And never try to hide anything. And there's two financial statements, right? This is the 13.1, and then there's yep. the 13. What's the, the distinction, Bill? Yeah, one of them has property on it. If you're if you're married, then 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 you use the 13.1, which talks about your property. Uh, if you're not married, then you just use the 13. I think it is. It's just about income, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, there's that too. Okay, a couple questions, real quick, Bill. These are just coming in from the audience. Is income owed to you property? Yes, it is. Any future interests? Uh, yeah, there's a spot for it. Money owed to you. And that, that goes on. That's your property. Including if that's income, I guess? Well, it's property. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, One, it's, it's considered property. One question that came in ahead of time. Um, what happens in a case where one of the parties kept all the assets in his mother's name? And it's also working under the table and not showing real income. So in terms of the property side, what's your answer to that question? 
Well, on the on the property side, um, uh, putting all your assets in your mom's name um, is uh, some people do it. Uh, it usually doesn't work. And one way of uh, counteracting that is to make a trust claim. Um, and you basically say, well, yeah, our house is in your mom's name, but really um, I deserve part of it. So she's holding it in trust for us. That's your trust claim. And we have a separate live event to talk about that. Also, we'll do an advanced version of this where we'll talk about crypto, non-fungible tokens or digital assets as well. But again, this is the one-on-one version. We're giving everybody yeah. a quick overview. So thank you for that, Bill. All right, Rick. So calculating and sharing property, what do we want to look at here? And sorry, these, our notes are going to be provided at the end. We had another question looking for supporting materials. So you'll get that in a follow-up email. Thank you, Rick. Sorry, your head. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, Bill. So sharing, calculating and sharing family property. So the question is, what is property? Uh, the Family Law Act has uh, a certain term or terminology, specifically uh, the term of net family property. What, what does that mean? What's, what's the intention of the net family property uh, scheme under the Family Law Act? So on review of the case law, specifically a case called Cosentino back in 2015, uh, ONSC 271. Um, the court there says that the general intention of the net family property equalization scheme of the Family Law Act is that each spouse will share equally in the monetary product of the marriage. And the meaning of property in that family property must be interpreted in according with this general intent. So clearly when the legislators um, sat down to put the Family Law Act in place. Um, the, the intention was right from the beginning, the purpose was to share everything equally. Um, and that's how they, 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 they approach this. Um, in terms of the calculation of the uh, fa family property, uh, again, it's set out in the acts, uh, <clears throat> uh, sections four and five specifically. Uh, first, you have to determine what the net family property is of each spouse. And that's basically by determining the value of the property owned by them and including any deductions or uh, exemptions or exclusions. And then once that's done, uh, then uh, it's, you would have to do a, an equalization calculation. Um, and again, the same case of Cosentino says that pursuant to the stage one, section four requires identification of all relevant property and the ownership of that property. Ownership includes registered ownership and consideration of trust principles. Um, then the court, court must determine the relevant deductions and exclusions under sections 4.1 and 4.2. Once that's been done at that point there, uh, then uh, the calculation of each spouse's NFP is determined and then from there, the equalization calculation can... Uh, can you tell us, what a, just for, for the audience members who don't know, Rick, what's an NFP? So NFP is the abbreviation of net family property. Right, and that's the chart that gives us all the assets, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. And and we'll be covering that a little later in the slides, I believe, but um, that's, that's the abbreviation uh, of it. Um, to do an equalization calculation, as Bill said, that you have to look at date of marriage assets and, 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 date, of, and date of separation. Date of marriage assets is effectively property owned 
and brought into the marriage by both spouses. And that property can be held solely in that person's name or uh, jointly with someone else. Um, probably for most family law lawyers is, is the most common problem is lengthy marriages. So if a marriage is 30 years old, um, most spouses aren't contemplating 30 years prior that they're gonna end up getting a separation or divorce. So they're not usually holding on to the supporting documentation. Uh, so it's gonna be difficult to prove an asset walking into the marriage uh, if you don't have that documentation. Um, date of marriage property is excluded from the division and, and we'll cover how the equalization calculation is gonna be done uh, a little later in the uh, slide show. Um, moving on to data separation assets, that's effectively assets owned on the data separation. And again, the assets can be held solely in one person's name or, or in conjunction or jointly with someone else. Um, and, and again, that has to be proven, as Bill said, that you have to prove your- A couple your, quick points, Rick, this is really good. When you say equalization, <laughs> that's just a fancy way of saying sharing, right? That's right. That's right. And data separation is important because the statute says that's the valuation date that we value the assets. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, moving on to the uh, concept of deductions. So deductions are, are often referred to as date of marriage credits or premarital quote unquote deductions. And these are, are excluded from the division. So the idea is from the way the Family Law Act is, is designed that spouses, married spouses are on separation, are sharing equally the fruit of their marriage from the date of marriage to the date of separation. Okay. Um, and so the value of property being brought into the marriage, if it cannot be ascertained, is excluded. It's deducted from the overall uh, calculation. Um, as Bill said, the onus is on the person. The, legis the legislation requires that the person supporting a value, whether on date of marriage or date of separation, uh, is supported by documentary evidence. Um, and in the case of Townsend and Townsend, the court in that case uh, reaffirmed that principle to say that the trend in case law is that the claim should be supported by documentary evidence. The legislature places the onus of proving the deduction from that family per property on the person claiming it. Okay. Section 4.2 of the Family Law Act has, is a section that deals with what's called excluded property for purpose of determining and sharing family property. And it, it lists uh, a, a series of items, six items there that are excluded that do not fall in a person's uh, net family property calculation. And those include property other than a matrimonial home that was acquired by gift or inheritance from a third person after the date of marriage, income from property from either a gift or inheritance uh, that was received from a third person after the date of marriage, uh, specifically in the case of an inheritance if the donor or testator has expressly stated that it to be excluded from a spouse's net family property. Oftentimes, if you'll see in um, wills that there's a provision in the will that sets that out, that the uh, testator will say that any income 
that's derived from uh, any property that's going to be bequeathed to be excluded. Uh, so sometimes you'll find that language in wills. Third is damages or right to damages for personal injuries, nervous shock, mental distress, or loss of guidance, care, and companionship, or part of a settlement that represents those damages. Four is proceeds or rights to proceeds of a policy or life insurance. Uh, five is property other than a matrimonial home into which property referred to in paragraphs one to four can be traced. And then six is properties that uh, spouses have agreed by a domestic contract not to be included. So it's possible, uh, and you'll often find this in cohabitation agreements where people exclude uh, property in general or certain types of property from ever being equalized. And lastly, unadjusted pensionable earnings under the Canada Pension Plan. So these lists of, uh, of enumerated exclusions. Um, and again, though, the premise again is, is it seems to focus initially on that purpose or intent that I spoke about initially. Uh, these items generally don't arise out of the monetary fruits of the marriage on separation. Uh, they're usually outside sources. Uh, most commonly, well, uh, I guess for lawyers, we'll see uh, the concepts of either gifts, monetary gifts, or inheritance. Um, and generally, the case law states the following legal principles that a property that may otherwise be excluded, but can be traced to property used for common purposes of the family, um, cannot uh, be excluded from a net family property statement. So for example, if, if um, there was a monetary gift given uh, and some of that money was spent, uh, if, there's, if there's still a balance owing, uh, you can claim the balance owing on the separation if it's still existing on that date, uh, but you can't claim the full amount if it was already used for common family purposes. And one example of this is a case called Maharaj and Wilford Jacob. Um, the wife's parents gave the wife $25,000 in 2010 when they sold their home. The money was deposited into the joint account. And in, in February of 2011, the wife asked for the $25,000 back. She spent some of that money of the 25,000. At the time of separation, only $10,000 of those funds were in a GIC. She sought to exclude the $10,000 from her NFP. And husband argued that it was placed into an adjoining account and shouldn't be excluded. So the court in Maharaj basically said this, there's no doubt that the $25,000 was placed into an adjoining account. And they reaffirmed the principle that where property, which is otherwise excluded, is commingled with property used for common purposes of the family, it cannot be excluded. However, where a joint account is merely a conduit for money to flow from one person to another, or where, when money is parked in a joint account, there is co no commingling. So the court found that I find that the $25,000 was not commingled. It was quote unquote parked in the joint account for safekeeping. Ms. Maharaj asked for it back and the husband gave it back. Therefore he recognized it was her money. And now he cannot say that it was commingled and should not be excluded. So she was entitled to the $10,000 uh, exclusion ultimately uh, for purposes of equalization. Um, another interesting point is, is, is a case called Townshend and Townshend. Uh, 
in this case here that Mr. Townshend received $25,000 from his mother uh, as a gift in June 2001. Uh, and that those funds were placed into a joint account. Uh, the court in that case did not allow the $25,000 from being excluded. Uh, the court, the trial, at the trial level, and I'll get to the, there's a court of appeal, it was appealed at the court of appeal, but the trial judge basically said that by the nature of the transfer, it loses its, its exclusionary transfer. It was appealed to the court of appeal, uh, and the court of appeal reversed that, and they basically said that the husband was entitled to exclusion of one half of the amount of the gift that was given to him from his mother, even though it was deposited in the joint account. Um, the excluded property deposited in the joint account only uh, loses exclusionary character to the extent of one half of the interest and the other half of the interest or the other 50% was presumed to be gifted to the spouse. There's a lot to unpack there, Rick. There uh, is, there is. Thank you for that. And we're gonna get, we've got case examples of all these, all these studies. So one point I would make is personal injury awards may not necessarily always be excluded. There's some case law that says certain aspects of those awards can be treated as property. Um, question came in about post-separation assets. That's, those are not generally considered property. Is that correct, Rick? That's correct, though. So really, the, the two pillars are from the date of marriage, the date of separation, uh, in, for purposes of an equalization. I really, uh, I really I, like this question that came in. Uh, maybe you want to take a stab at this, Bill. Pre-marriage assets, can they be brought into the sharing of family property? What do you think? Well, um, as Rick said, normally um, everything you have uh, on the day you get married, um, you keep. But if they're cohabitating? Oh, if they're not married? Yeah, but and they get married. So right. those cohabitation, premarital assets, what do we do about that? Well, um, normally... Uh, in terms of equalization, everything you have on date of marriage, you keep right. it, it doesn't go into your net family property. Yeah. Um, so what you would do is uh, if, if there are pre-marriage assets that only one person is on title, then you'd have to bring a trust claim for those, which you can do. In addition to your family law regime. Yes, you can. During property, yep. during trust claims. And we have another live event on that, which Bill did a great summary yeah, of. You can do a trust claim on pre-marriage and post-separation, and then equalization as well. So you have three things on the go. It's just like a menu at a restaurant, right? <laughs> pre-marriage trust claims. Let's run our poll, and I got one more question while I've got you on the hot seat here, Rick. This came in advance, so thank you. We, uh, everybody keep having the questions come in. Uh, my ex has a business that he incorporated an insurance adjuster. Uh, is this considered, is this still considered part of his assets when they were doing this calculation? So, uh, the, spouses have, the spouse is a corporation. Is that part of the marital assets? Well, a business corporation may have a value to it. And if it does, then it does fall in the concept of property to be equalized. So, right. the answer is yes. The interesting thing on that, though, Rick, is some people have a I knew I had a, a guy who had a, his business was a, he was a motivational speaker and he was the company. It was just him. Mm 
And it was a company, but it wasn't really worth, like he couldn't sell it, it wasn't worth anything because it was just him. So you need to get these companies valued and sometimes they have no value. But yeah. now you can speak of a sharing property, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to sell you my corporation that is about public speaking and I'm the only person who does any and I'm not going to be in it after I sell it. So how much right. is it worth? Right. And just another quick point about tracing, because this is this can be, you know, kind of a difficult spot. Let's just say you get 50 grand inheritance cash. You go and buy your car. And on your data separation, the car that you bought with that inheritance is worth 30. But you can you have a fairly clean trace there, but you're not going to get the 50, you're going to get the 30. And just with commingling funds, if the in the case you talked about, if both spouses were putting money into the account and paying household bills from that, that's been commingled, right? We can't distinguish which one was the inheritance or which one was the paycheck. Uh, so you want to keep an eye out for that. And the, the trick is, Russ, like you said, do, if you have a gift or inheritance, do not commingle it. Keep it separate. Yeah. And your spouse will love you for that. Yeah. Well, that's the advice we give, right? And the other, um, yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So Bill was doing some late night research. Can you own more than one matrimonial home? Let's see what the results are. No, 25%. Um, yes, absolutely, 50%. Um, yes, but only if it's set cottage, 9%. If you're on title, 13 So kind of a, all across the map there. So let's get into this, Bill. Um, really important part of the family law regime for sharing property, this concept of a home or a matrimonial home. What are we talking about? Well, yeah, you, you most certainly can have more than one matrimonial home. Um, Typically, it's a, a house and a cottage. Um, and the test is, is the cottage ordinarily occupied by the couple? So if you go up one weekend to summer, I don't know. That seems extraordinary to me. There has to be an ordinariness, a pattern. I mean, if there is, then yeah, you've got two matrimonial homes, the cottage and the house. Um, I found a case where there was three matrimonial homes. Um, it's a case called Bot and Bot, B-O-T. It's a two, 2010 case uh, on chair of a superior court. Um, three matrimonial homes, a house in Sudbury, a cottage in Whitefish, and a condo in Toronto. Three. And the highest one I found, Russ, and I did, I was on Westlaw last night. I searched every case in Ontario. I thought you were just joking when you said you're going to look it up, but I'm. Wait, 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 let's do a count. I'm going to say six. What do you say, Rick? I say, I don't know, seven or eight. All right. Four. I was hoping it would be higher. I wanted it to be like 50. That would be just really funny. But no, it was four matrimonial homes. So the case is called Bassam and Bassam, B A S S A M, 1982 Ontario case. Basically, they had two cottages in Ontario and two condos in Florida. And all four of them were found to be matrimonial homes. So four is the record. What's special about the matrimonial home, though? Why do we care? Well, because um, uh, it matters if only one person is on title to it. Right. Um, if it's a matrimonial home, 
then even though only one person owned it, it still gets split, it gets divided in the, in the equalization. Um, that's, that's, that, that's the big thing. Um, also, uh, you can get exclusive possession of a matrimonial home. Um, and it's uh, section 24 of the Family Law Act talks about that. There's a bunch of stuff you can do. One of them is, is getting exclusive possession. So kicking your spouse out of it, typically done in cases where there is uh, domestic violence or a threat of domestic violence is usually the way, the reason they do that. But again, you have to be married to get that um, relief. And uh, do you want me to talk about uh, what happens if you can change your matrimonial home halfway through the marriage or whatever? Uh, not it's if it's not this, the home on uh, the date of separation. Right. Um, do you want me to talk about that? Well, yeah. Well, that's important because if it's no longer the home, then yeah. you get a deduction for uh, a yeah. home that was a matrimonial home. But that, it that, lost that's that right. special meaning, right? It lost that special status. That's right. Um, because a matrimonial home must be ordinarily occupied um, at the date of separation. So if you have a matrimonial home at the first part of the marriage, and then you sell it and get a different one, the first one does not, it, it ceases to be a matrimonial home because it was not occupied on the date of separation. So you can get a deduction for that. And that's a, the Court of Appeal case. Uh, everyone knows it's 1999. It's called Nahachewich, N-A-H-A-T-C-H-E-W-I-T-Z. It's common knowledge. It's just, yeah, you can do that and get a deduction. Change houses, basically. Yeah. Um, tons of questions coming in. Thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. One question was, the data separation defined. We've got a live event on that. Look for it basically. Um, once one person makes a decision, then the relationship and you have some kind of documentation or agreement to that effect. Pensions are part of property. Um, just on this issue of the home bill, well, if there's a matrimonial home and it sells, we had this question come in and it sells after the data separation, right? You got data separation value in today's market a year later, that could be $300,000 more. What value do we use? Well, that, that's the problem if, if you're using the matrimonial home law, which again is really, it's only relevant if one person's on title and more and more nowadays, both people are on title and then it kind of doesn't matter. Um, but um, because you both have the same interest and it cancels itself out in the equalization calculation. But if only one person's on title and they separate and then the house gets sold a year later for way more than it was worth on the date of separation. In terms of equalization, you're out of luck. What you'd have to do is bring in the trust claim. You love these trust claims. Everything trust claim, I'm telling you. Why don't we just start off with trust claims and just forget about the Family Law Act, right, Rick? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is you can make trust claims even though you have equalization as well, but the case is called Rollock. Everyone knows about that. So yeah, you'd have to make a trust claim saying, look, um, you know, the data separation value of the home is, is a lot lower than what my partner ended up getting for it. And by golly, I deserve some of that. I deserve some, so that's a trust claim. You can do it. People do it all the time. And these provisions are super important for a lot of families. The home is the biggest asset they have. 
So how we treat this home is significant. Let's run our poll. I've got a couple more quick questions for you, Bill, that came in. One, uh, just, just now, what about homes and properties in other countries? Is that subject to the sharing process we're talking about? It, it is. Problem is you can't order, you can't have an Ontario court order the sale of a house in China or in France or anywhere outside of Ontario, really. Um, but what you can do is ascertain the value of properties that are anywhere on earth and you use those values in your equalization calculation. So that, that's what you have to do. Yeah. Try getting a real estate appraisal in China. I did that once. Whoa. Or Spain. Um, Spain? Yeah, we had a case in Spain. Oh, did you? But uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy to get this stuff these, from China, let me tell you. These questions are excellent. I want to thank our audience for sending them in. Keep them coming in. Last question, Bill, and then we're going to get to the results of our poll question. RV trailers, matrimonial home. Do the tires have to be on or off? What are we looking at? Well, it depends on the state of the tires and this, how much they are inflated. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, hey, if you're living in a trailer, it has a value. It's going to be a matrimonial home. Even if you don't own the land that it's sitting on, I, I guess it's still a home. Subject to division. Yeah, I think so. It's an asset. It certainly is. I guess the real question is, does it attract the special characteristics of a matrimonial home? I would imagine so. Let's see what our audience thinks of this question. Are bank holidays or sick holidays considered property or income? Property subject to sharing, 18%. Income, possibly to spousal support, 31%. No, 28. Depends, 21. Other two, so pretty widespread across the board here. Um, what is the answer to this question? That is going to go to Rick in our next slide. Thank you, everybody. Okay, well, bank holidays, uh, they are. They're considered uh, They're considered property if they have a value on date of separation. Um, and they can be significant, right? You know, like teachers, police officers, sometimes they have you know, several months of bank holidays. Yeah. It could be a, a fairly significant amount of money. Yeah, usually this I found that this arises under collective agreements for unionized employees. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but but the question is, does it have any value? And if it's if, if it's a future value that has to be realized, and it's there's zero value of it um, on data separation, then there's no value to it. Uh, I came across a case called Rickett and Rickett of 1990, and the husband had a a, a, a uh, he was working with the Board of Education, and uh, basically his, his employment contract stated that uh, he was entitled to a sick leave or gratuity payment on retirement, um, but there were certain conditions that he had to meet. For example, he had to have 200 days of unused sick leave at the time, uh, and if so, if he satisfied that, he would be given a gratuity of a lesser of 50% of his annual salary or 35000 Again, this was a 1990 case. Um, wife tried to argue that the husband had 401 days of unused sick leave at the date of separation, but he was he was 10 years away from retiring, and at the time of the date of separation, um, that sick leave gratuity had no value. So the, that's that's effectively what the court said in that case. Um, I know I jumped ahead on the list. 
on special considerations. Uh, pensions and survivor benefits, they're considered property for, for uh, equalization purposes. <clears throat> um, uh, pensions are, are usually, uh, are almost always included in, in the NFP, um, but they don't necessarily have to form part of the equalization. Uh, they can be divided at source uh, as long as they're divided. Uh, whether they fall into the equalization scheme or they're divided at source, they need to be accounted for. Uh, so oftentimes we'll, you'll find a scenario where um, if, if one spouse is able to pay off their uh, equalization of the pension that they're owing to the other spouse, that would keep their pension intact for, for, uh, for when they retire and they would have met their equalization uh, uh, obligations. Survivor benefits, these are also, um, uh, they're considered, uh, considered an asset or property for purposes of equalization. Uh, there are certain criteria to satisfy it. Effectively, it depends on, on when the breakdown occurs and vis-a-vis uh, -vis the retirement. So for example, if the relationship break down, breaks down before retirement, uh, then the former spouse is not entitled to any survivor benefits from the from the pension holding spouse. However, if the breakdown happens after retirement and that pension holding spouse is, is collecting their pension, then the other spouse is entitled to a survivor benefit. In a case called Withers and Withers of 2013, uh, the court basically confirmed that, that a survivor benefit is a pension in its own right, uh, representing an expected future stream of income that can be actuarially valued. So these, these, these are significant assets. If you elect to do a survivor's benefit and if you have an Ontario Power Corporation, I don't even know if that's called that anymore, pension, this could be a three four $400,000 asset that goes on the spouse's side. They have to equalize it even though they don't get the money until the spouse dies. And, and many times it results in quite an unfair calculation in my experience. Has that been your experience, Rick? Yeah, yeah. Most often you'll see it in older, older, because of the, the requirement, uh, Russ, uh, they're yeah. usually older and they're great divorces, as we say. Right. Uh, and that's, that's the time when you find them, but it can, it can, it can cause some, some bizarre results, uh, as yeah. you said. Um, they cover the sick days and, and, and um, if you win the lottery, you hide the ticket and get a divorce. <laughs> That's right. Stock options. Bro, you said you have to be honest in your disclosure. Come on. Absolutely. I'm joking. Always be honest. Always, always, always. Depends when you bought the lottery ticket. If it's post-separation, I think you're clear. But what if you bought it with jointly held funds? Oh, the, the $2? That was from the <laughs> joint bank account, Russ? Oh. All right. Sorry, Rick. That's Keep going right. here. We want we want to get some Q and A at the end. I, Stock options are our assets uh, and uh, are to be valued. They can be uh, again though. There's a case called AE versus AE. It's a 2021 decision, um, and that case basically uh, states that for purposes of support or property claims, uh, they can be either property or income, and it depends on when the stock option uh, is vested or not. Uh, generally speaking, if the stock option has vested, it's, it's considered to be a benefit that accrues to the spouse who receives them, and therefore it's to be included in their income. Uh, if on the date of separation, 
uh, the, the stock option is unvested, uh, then at that point it becomes a property for purposes of equalization. Uh, the court in that decision basically said that uh, an unvested stock on the date of separation constitutes, quote unquote, a present right to acquire something in the future. And obviously, usually with conditions attached, stock options are very complicated. Usually you need a qualified business income valuator to value the options with full disclosure. Um, and um, uh, some of the potential problems with the stock options, uh, there's a few of them. Uh, and again, it depends on the timing of exercising the option and its effect on the value. For example, uh, a stock option may have a value on the date of separation, maybe a higher value. But years later, when the trial comes, uh, that option may have decreased. So there's a post-separation decline in value, and uh, that may lead to some unfair results, and that needs to be considered. Um, notional disposition costs. Uh, famous Court of Appeal decision, Seng Mueller and Seng Mueller of 1994. Uh, effectively, the court said as a general, and I'm quoting this in another case from a Court of Appeal called Rakitova of 2016. And quoting their earlier cases, Seng Mueller, the court there said as a general rule, in determining whether disposition costs should be deducted from an asset's value, the analysis should take into account evidence of the probable timing of the disposition it's appropriate to deduct disposition costs from net family property, quote unquote, if there's satisfactory evidence of a likely disposition date, and if it's clear that such costs will be inevitable when the owner disposes of the assets or is deemed to have disposed of them. Okay, Rick, hang on. You lost me at hello. What is a notional disposition cost? So I was going to say that, Russ. Believe it or not, I just read your mind. So. <laughs> I think I know what it is, but for people who didn't spend, you know, seven years going to school, what does it mean? Notional disposition costs are costs which would be inevitable when uh, an asset is, is disposed of. So, for example, um, uh, they could include a real estate commission, even on a buyout between two spouses. Uh, they don't necessarily need the real estate uh, there's no official sale, let's say, uh, but they would attract what's called a notional disposition cost of, of the commission that will eventually happen when that property is sold in the future. Right. So you would allow that at that time when calculating your, yeah. your net family property. Or your $500,000 pension, for example, is going to yeah. attract a 30% tax rate. So we reduce it by 150000 My math is right. And yeah. uh, you use a smaller amount, amount, amount to share. So let's just flip over to our next poll. Thank you, Rick. That was excellent. A couple of quick things. We have a question about unequal division. We're going to get to that tax-free savings account, our property. Um, Rick, notional disposition costs, you can also apply them on the date of marriage assets. Lots of people don't think about that. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. You can apply them both on date of marriage or on the date of separation. And I know Bill and I were bantering about the lottery tickets. These are these can be very significant winnings. We have lottery cases on our blog. My my analysis is it's going to be a fact-driven exercise in each case. Um, so take a look at the case law, I'll give you some guidance in terms of what we deal with lottery ticket winnings. But you know, if you have a, a million dollar winning, people are gonna fight about it, right? So take a look at the case law, understand if it's gonna be excluded. All right, so this is another tough one for families, right? You know, you have these 
family cottages that have been in the family for 100 years should the family cottage owned in generation by generations be excluded you know this creates a lot of inner family conflict when a party gets separated and all of a sudden the cottage they've been going to for 50 years is gone or it's going to be sold um, so let's see what our audience thinks no should not be 34 percent depends how often you go to the cottage is a good answer. 35% depends how many generations uh, the cottage has been in the family. 6%. Yes, it should be excluded. 24%. Clearly, um, lots of uh, lots of disagreement. Bill, what's the answer here? Family cottage. These are these are tough cases. Yeah, they they are. I mean, if you ordinarily occupy a, a family cottage, I mean it. it the law doesn't care if it's been in the family for a hundred years, bottom line. Yeah, that's really where the rubber hits the road though, right? That seems unfair. Yeah, it's better to stay together then. Uh, Bill, tell us about the onus. Who's got to prove yeah. that, you know, it's a balance of probabilities, I assume. The onus, well, the onus, um, not just family colleges, but all these things yeah. we've been talking about, exclusions, um, deductions. If, well, the, the, in terms of um, an interesting thing is if you we're talking about uh, if someone has a business or a corporation that's, that's worth something, not the one-man operation who's a motivational speaker, because you can't sell that. But if it's a company that actually is worth something and you own it, you have the onus to get it valued by a professional business evaluator. And that costs money, but you got to do it. Um, and if you're claiming uh, any kind of a deduction or an exclusion um, from equalization, you have the onus to, to show that, for example, this was an inheritance and I kept it separate. It's up to you to show that. So, yeah. The, the big one I think is that people don't like is if they have a corporation that's worth something and, and they, they don't like the fact that they have to spend a lot of money um, getting it valued, but but they do. All right, thank you. Bring this home for us, um, Rick. We're going to talk about equalization. A couple of quick questions that are coming up. RSPs, I would think, would consider property. This is kind of a really. Um, do you ask teachers and police officers to provide a copy of their employment contracts? Well, you certainly want to learn about the sick days. So certainly, more disclosure than less. And but when if you have an excluded asset and it increases in value, do you share the increase in value? I'd say, no, it's excluded. Is that right? Nope, that, that's what exclusion means. It's like it doesn't exist. These are fantastic questions coming in. Thank you, everyone. Okay, equalization. Then we're gonna get into some Q&A and a quick talk about the limitation period. Go ahead, Rick, you're up. It's, so the concept and purpose of equalization. So it's 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 set out in black and white in the family law, specifically section five sub seven. This is the fancy way of saying how you're going to share your property, right? And it just basically says that uh, the purpose of the section is to recognize that childcare, household management, and financial provision are joint responsibility of spouses, and that inherent in the marital relationship there is an equal contribution, whether financial or otherwise, by the spouses to the assumption of these responsibilities entitling each spouse to the equalization of net family properties subject only to equitable considerations set out in subsection six. And that's what we'll be talking about. Um, subsection six allows for an unequal division. And 
um, and they list a certain uh, uh, a list of factors. Uh, effectively, uh, basically, it, subsection reads that the court may award a spouse an amount that's more or less half the difference between the net family properties if the court is of the opinion that equalizing the net family properties would be, quote, unconscionable, having regard to, and it happens in cases where a spouse's failure to disclose uh, debts or liabilities existing at the date of marriage, uh, the fact that debts or liabilities claimed in reduction of a spouse's net family property, uh, and if they were recklessly incurred or done in bad faith, uh, spouse's net family property consists of a gift made by the other spouse, a spouse's intentional reckless depletion of his or her net family property, the fact that an amount of a spouse would otherwise receive under subsection one, two, or three is disproportionately large in relation to a cohabitation of less than five years. So effectively short-term marriages. The Two fact years that one, is unconscionable. Five years and one month is okay, right? Yeah, effectively. You got to slice it somewhere. Okay. So. Um, well, it's kind of random, but I know that's what the, you're just going through the legislation. Go ahead, Rick. Married for 15 minutes in Las Vegas. That's considered yeah. a short marriage. What's considered unconscionable, the Court of Appeal defined that in, in a case called Sarah and Sarah. And in fact, the court said that the threshold of unconscionability is exceptionally high. Uh, the jurisprudence is clear that it, it's, it's clear that circumstances which are quote unquote unfair, harsh, or un, unjust alone do not meet the test. To cross the threshold, uh, an equal division of net family properties in the circumstances must shock the conscience of the court. So yeah, that's, the judge was in shock. We had to stop the trial. <laughs> so that's basically the legal test of what judge had PTSD. All right, Bill, listen, we want to save time for QA. Stop causing trouble. <laughs> You'd have to Limitation get Limitation periods. What do we need to know? We'll give you one minute or less. There is a six-year limitation period to bring an equalization claim, six years from separation or two years from the date of divorce is granted. Um, but this period can often be extended um, if the claimant can show that there are apparent grounds for relief. In other words, there is an asset there that they wanna fight over to the delay for making the claim has been done in good faith. And three, no person will be substantially prejudiced. So uh, uh, the courts often extend that six year period. All right. Thank you for that, Bill. And it was one minute or less. So let's bring this train in the station. Our host, Stephanie's back. Welcome back, Steph. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to hear all of the, the knowledge that you all can share. So now I think it's a great time to move into our Q&A. In a financial settlement during a divorce, assets are devalued, mortgages overborrowed, rental income reduced, uh, to undermine the share of the weaker person, how does the court deal with these situations and what precautions can be taken? Bill? Yeah, um, you're not allowed to do that. So uh, uh, what you can do is, is uh, the, the things that Rick was talking about that shock the conscience of the court. Um, uh, one of those shocking things is if debts are, debts are uh, incurred recklessly or in bad faith, Sounds like that applies here. So you could have an unequal division um, or never mind debt. If you spend, if you blow a bunch of money, they call it reckless depletion of money. If you do that, 
then again, the court can say, okay, I'm shocked and I'm gonna make an unequal division. So that's how you'd fight that. And it does happen, um, but the law is designed to remedy it. Amazing, and uh, one more quick one. Um, what is the best way to deal with post-separation adjustments? Is it best to deal with equalization first and add and deduct after? How would you approach it? Rick, you wanna take a crack at that one? Yeah, usually you would calculate your equalization and then uh, adjust it after the fact. You need, you need to nail down the equalization payment first. Yeah, we usually do a clean uh, net family property statement so we know what that number is. And then post-separation adjustments might be, you know, property tax, mortgage, insurance, things of this nature are adjusted either in the favor or deducted from who's paying who. Great question though, Steph, thanks. All right, lovely. And uh, that seems to be all the, the time we have for today. So I want to thank everyone and all of our panelists for uh, taking the time to join us for today's presentation. We hope you found the content helpful. So if you do have any questions about our virtual event series or any comments for our team, please feel free to reach out to Shannon at RussellAlexander.com or myself, Stephanie at RussellAlexander.com. We do host our virtual event series bi-weekly on Wednesdays at 12 p.m. on a variety of family law topics. Uh, so thank you again for joining us. I wanna thank Rick and Bill for giving us an hour of their time today. Really, really insightful stuff. Thank you for hosting. And more importantly, I wanna thank everybody who attended today. We had over 250 people register. So this is a record number for us. We hope to see you in our future uh, event series. So great work, Steph. I really appreciate everybody's time today. Thank you so much.